Well, good evening, and thank you for inviting me to be back with you. Uh, I know it's been uh, a while since we did a apologetics weekend. I believe it was last fall, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, we spent some time looking at counterfeit forms of Christianity, like the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. We also spent some time looking at Islam uh, and some other issues. And so uh, I appreciate Adam asking me back uh, to do another weekend. And this one is a little, was a little more difficult for me to prepare for because if you're like me, I don't very often run into Hindus or Buddhists or Scientologists. Uh, and nevertheless, those are uh, some belief systems that are widely embraced by people all over the world and many here in the United States. And it's important to know at least a little bit about what they believe and practice. And so we will do that uh, tomorrow. We'll spend a session on Hinduism, session on Buddhism, and a session on Scientology. But tonight what we want to do is sort of lay a foundation for that. And we're going to start in our first session by uh, raising the question, how can 4.5 billion people be wrong? Uh, if Christianity is the exclusive uh, religion it claims to be, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father except through him, that means to reject the provision that God has given us in Christ, put somebody outside of the kingdom of God. And there are more people outside the kingdom of God than there are in the kingdom of God. And so how can that be? So we're gonna kind of address that tonight in our first session and specifically look at the situation that unbelievers are in. So we're gonna do that in the first session. Then we'll take a break. And then when we come back for our second session tonight, we're gonna to look at a passage in 2 Corinthians, specifically 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul gives us three markers for identifying false prophets, false preachers, and false teachers. And we can take those three biblical markers and lay them beside any belief system and get some idea of whether that's a belief system that is faithful and true to scripture and whether it's not. So that's what we're gonna to do tonight is kind of lay a foundation for that. And tomorrow we'll dive more specifically into uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Scientology. And then Sunday morning, we'll kind of wrap it up by saying, okay, if we have all these different belief systems, um, how can we be uh, a gracious and effective witness to those people who don't know Christ, who are sincere, they're seeking the truth, they believe they've found the truth, nevertheless, uh, they have been deceived, they're in darkness. So we prepared for you um, for this weekend a little booklet, so each of you should have one of these. And um, uh, for each session there will be a worksheet and we can work through that together. And for most of the sessions there's also a short article um, so that you don't have to take frantic notes to keep up and if you don't wanna do the worksheet you don't even have to do the worksheet. Now you can do it later if you want to. Um, and that way also those who are not able to be here this weekend will have some of the same uh, information that we're going to look at together. So let's start with our first session by raising the question, how can 4.5 billion people be wrong? And before we delve into that question, I do want for us to start with a passage of scripture. 
and we'll end up closing our session with this passage of scripture, but I want for us to have it in front of us, and it's in John chapter 16. In John chapter 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's preparing them that he's going to go away. He has set his face for Jerusalem. He's going to die on the cross, uh, be buried and rise on the third day. He's told his disciples that and then he further tells them he's going to return to his father, but they should not be uh, upset overly about that because he's going to send the Holy Spirit who will not only be with them, but be in them. But then Jesus gives us a passage of scripture about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world, that is, to those who are outside the kingdom of God. And in verse 7 of John 16, Jesus says, nevertheless, because they've got sorrow in their heart, Jesus is going away. Nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. So he's assuring them that Jesus is not going to leave them as orphans. When he goes to be with the Father, he's going to send the Holy Spirit who will be with them and more importantly, be in them. The temple in Jerusalem is going to be exchanged for the temple of the human body where the Holy Spirit will take up permanent residence to those who repent and believe. But then he says in verse uh, number 8, when he comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict, or your translation might say convince or reprove the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father and you will no longer see me and about judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. So keep that in mind, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the unbelieving world. We're going to come back to that at the close of this session and kind of wrap up with the necessity of the Word of God and the Spirit of God in helping draw unbelievers to faith in Christ. Well, according to uh, the website Adherence dot com, uh, which has statistics on belief systems all over the world. Uh, it says there are more than seven billion people in the world. And this is number one on your worksheet. Uh, and there are 1.6 billion Muslims. There are 1.1 billion people who classify themselves as non-religious. They are just atheist or non-religious. 900 million Hindus, nearly 400 million Buddhists. There are 7 million Baha'is. Uh, there are millions of adherents of other faith systems. And there are also 2.1 billion Christians. Now, according to that website, by Christians, that's a pretty broad category. Uh, that includes Catholics and Protestants. It also includes counterfeit forms of Christianity like the LDS Church and the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society and Christian Science and others. And it includes what's known as nominal Christians, nominal Christians. That is people who say, yeah, I'm a Christian, uh, but I can't remember the last time I was in 
a church. So that gives you some idea of how the world's population is divided up by belief system. So if we look at those statistics and we confess, as we do as Christians, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, we hold to the exclusive claims of Jesus, the exclusive claims of Christianity. If those claims are true, and we believe they are, that means about four and a half billion people lie outside the kingdom of God. So how can most of the world's people be wrong? And that's the question we're going to seek to answer, at least in some way, in this first session. So to get a proper perspective on that, it might help us to consider what the Bible teaches about those who don't know Christ. They may be seeking the truth. They may have embraced a belief system like Scientology, uh, Hinduism, um, the Watchtower, Christian science, uh, naturalism, animism. Uh, they may have embraced some belief system and they feel fully convinced they've found the truth. Nevertheless, according to scripture and according to the words of Jesus, they've not found the truth. So how can that be? How can somebody be so sincere? How can so many people be so sincere and yet sincerely wrong? Well, I think the Bible gives us some indication about that um, by giving us uh, a description of those who are outside the kingdom of God. And so uh, in number two on your worksheet, that blank there says there are more than 4.5 billion people outside the kingdom, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is God's rule, God's reign, God's sovereignty. God, of course, is sovereign over everything, but we know that there's a competing kingdom, and that is the kingdom of Satan. Some are in the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. Some are in the kingdom of God, and they're competing kingdoms. But in Matthew chapter 12 and 13, Jesus talks about the fact that he came and he has invaded Satan's kingdom. And he's tied up the strong man, Satan, and he's plundering Satan's goods. He's bringing people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And one day, Satan and his demons and all those who have rejected God's grace and God's mercy will be cast into the lake of fire. And God's going to create new heavens and a new earth and the kingdom of God. God will have full reign and sovereignty over everything without uh, allowing someone like Satan to, for a period of time, have authority over a fallen and dark kingdom. So let's look at eight ways that uh, the Bible describes unbelievers. And this will be under number three in our worksheet. Uh, first of all, the Bible says that the unbeliever is natural or without the spirit. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. In 1 Corinthians 2, 14, he says, but the person without the spirit, the King James says, but the natural man does not receive what comes from God's spirit because it's foolishness to him. He's not able to understand it since it is evaluated 
spiritually. And so Paul describes the unbeliever as a natural man or a natural woman. Uh, that means that um, they do not have the indwelling spirit of God. And so the unbeliever, in a sense, is only two-thirds fully alive. The unbeliever is alive in body. They're living and breathing, and their five senses are working. They're alive in soul. In other words, they have a conscious existence. They have a mind. They have emotions, and they have a will. But the innermost part of them that God made as his holy of holies, his dwelling place, has been shut off from God by their unbelief. And so they're spiritually dead. And so the way they discern truth, the way they perceive reality is based on their five senses, based on their emotions, based on their feelings, based on their will, based on their experiences. And so you can see if someone doesn't have the indwelling spirit of God, the revealer of truth, the discerner of truth, then they can sincerely grasp a belief system that makes sense to them, but it's not true. So Paul says, first of all, the unbeliever is a natural man or a natural woman. That is, he or she does not have the spirit of God. Secondly, the unbeliever is blind, blind. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, he says, the God of this age or the God of this world, and who is that? That's Satan. He is the prince of the power of the air. He's the ruler of this world. And uh, the King James refers to him as the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who believe not. And he keeps them in darkness. So the unbeliever is not only disadvantaged because they don't have the spirit of God to illuminate truth, but they're also blinded. Uh, Satan has put a veil over their eyes and it's hard for them to see the truth of scripture, to see that they're sinners separated from God, to see that their good works can't earn salvation. They're blinded to that. And Satan is the one who blinds their minds. And oftentimes he does that with half-truths. When we look tomorrow at uh, Buddhism and Hinduism and even Scientology, uh, there's a little bit of truth in that. You can't say that everything they believe and practice and teach is totally false. Um, but it is substantially and fundamentally false. Even scarier, the closer a false belief system gets to true Christianity, the more dangerous it is. That's why counterfeit forms of Christianity, like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, are so dangerous because they do share a lot of things that are true. Uh, but it is a thin veneer of truth. It's a skin of truth that is over really a, a, a rotten to the core belief system that denies the triune God, that denies the deity of Christ, that denies salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that denies the physical resurrection from the dead, that denies the authority and inerrancy of scripture, and so on. And so Paul says the unbeliever is natural and the unbeliever is blind. Third, the unbeliever is bound, bound. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2 
to young pastor Timothy. And he urges Timothy to engage his uh, opponents, those who oppose him and who oppose the gospel message with gentle perseverance. And he says to trust God that God might grant them repentance to know the truth. And he says in the midst of that, in verse 26 of 2 Timothy chapter 2, then they, opponents of the gospel, unbelievers, then they may come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Wow, so an unbeliever is only two-thirds fully alive. The unbeliever is blinded, and now the unbeliever is imprisoned, imprisoned by Satan who holds them captive to do his will. But it gets worse. <laughs> Number four, the unbeliever is alienated. And Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, he says, so don't be foolish. Oops, I'm in the wrong chapter. That's Ephesians 5. Ephesians 4, 17. He says, therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord. You, the believers, should no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding and excluded from the life of God. So unbelievers are alienated or excluded from the life of God. The Holy Spirit is being pushed away, is being denied, and so he cannot take up his rightful place in the spirit, in the holy of holies of the temple of the unbeliever's body. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, Paul writes, though once, writing to believers, though once alienated, and hostile in your minds and expressed in your evil actions, you've been reconciled to God by Christ's body through his death. And so they are alienated from God. Number five, the unbeliever is an enemy of God. Unbelievers are enemies of God. And we know that God exhibits what's called omnibenevolence. God loves all people. Uh, nevertheless, there are those who are enemies of God, not by God's choice, but by their choice. They've rejected the revelation of God in creation, in conscience, in the canon of Scripture, and in the person of, and work of Christ. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, he says that, remember that you once were enemies of God. And that's a situation that God remedied through the death of his son. God does not desire to be an enemy of us. We're the ones who place God as our enemies. But through the sacrificial and substitutionary death of Christ, through his finished work on the cross, he has made a way for us to be reconciled to God and no longer to be enemies, but to be children of God and even more than children of God, to be adopted sons and daughters of God, to be joint heirs with Christ, to be a member of God's family.
Number six, unbelievers are condemned, condemned. In John 3.18, Jesus says the one who has believed in Christ is not condemned. But the one who does not believe is condemned already. Why are they condemned already? Because they have not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. Number seven, unbelievers are in darkness. In darkness. Paul writes in Acts chapter 26, verse 18, uh, he says that God has sent him, or actually Jesus has sent Paul to the Gentiles. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter was the apostle to the Jews. And Paul said he was sent to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, he says, believers once were darkness, but now they are light. Colossians 1.13 says Christ came to rescue us from the domain of darkness, the sphere of darkness. And in 1 Peter 2.9, Peter says God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so the unbeliever is in spiritual darkness. And uh, when we read through the New Testament, we also see that uh, particularly Christ, when he talks about um, resurrection and final judgment, he talks about a place of outer darkness, a place that is far from the light and the warmth and the direct presence of God himself. So those who are in darkness, who do not repent and believe, will go out into eternity into everlasting outer darkness away from Christ. Well, number eight, unbelievers are spiritually dead, spiritually dead, alive in body, alive in conscious existence, alive in soul, but dead in spirit. In Ephesians 2.1, Paul reminds the believers they once were dead in their trespasses and sins. Obviously, he's talking about spiritual death because they're very much alive as they're reading his letter, but they're spiritually dead. He says, so once you were dead in trespasses and sins, but God has made them alive in Christ. So when we look at these three characteristics of the unbeliever, um, it should not surprise us why people can be sincere, why people can seek the truth, and why they can even embrace a belief system that is false and yet believe it's true. There is a great disadvantage to the unbeliever who is blinded and bound and natural and spiritually dead uh, and in darkness and alienated from God and an enemy of God. So it might kind of cause you to throw up your hands and say, well, what hope is there? What possible hope is there for these 4.5 billion people who are outside the kingdom of God? Well, that's what I want for us to spend our remaining time on. Number four on the worksheet, 
says there is a way for lost people to be restored to a right relationship with God. In John 14, 6, Jesus declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. Jesus was very clear. And oftentimes throughout the Gospels, he made very specific statements, exclusive statements. He said, you know, no one knows the Father but the one who is in the bosom of the Father. I and the Father are one. Um, uh, he referred to himself as the I am, uh, the same reference that Jehovah uses in Exodus to reveal himself in the burning bush as Yahweh or the one true and living God. Jesus forgave sins. Jesus received worship. Uh, he exhibited characteristics only God can exhibit, uh, such as omniscience and omnipotence. He said, all power uh, is mine in heaven and on earth. And he made very exclusive claims about being the eternal son of God who came in human flesh, fully divine and fully human to redeem lost humanity. And that because he did that, he is the only hope we have of everlasting life. And so there is a way for the unbeliever to be reconciled to God, and that is by faith and trust in Jesus. Now the next page on your worksheet. says that salvation is a gift of God received by grace through faith. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul writes, and the verse we probably all know by heart, for by grace, the unmerited favor of God, God's goodness, by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So salvation is by God's grace. One of the things we'll see tomorrow, which as you recall when we studied Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and Muslims, is that they all have a works-based doctrine of salvation. Well, so do Buddhists, so do Hindus, and so do Scientologists. Um, one of the things that makes Christianity unique is that Christianity is based upon a person who provided for us to be restored to a right relationship with God, and salvation is received as a gift from God and received by His grace alone through faith alone. We cannot do anything to earn God's favor we cannot do anything that will substantially uh, begin to put a dent in the eternal sin debt that we own, O God. But God, by his grace, sent his son who paid our sin debt for us, and he rose from the dead to conquer Satan's sin and death for us so that forgiveness of sins, everlasting life, being restored to a right relationship with God is God's gift that we receive when we receive it by faith. All right, number six. For all people, there is a day of reckoning. 
a day of reckoning, when Jesus raises us from the dead and we stand before him in judgment. Uh, in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, the hour is coming. Uh, the day is coming, the time is coming, depending on your translation. But the hour is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. And he says, those who have done good deeds to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil deeds to the resurrection of damnation or condemnation. Um, now that passage creates some controversy on two fronts. One is that, first of all, Jesus says the hour is coming or the day is coming or the time is coming. And that leads some people um, who have a certain view of the end times to say there's going to be a single day, a single hour, a single time, and everybody's going to be resurrected and judged at the same time. And that may be the case, uh, but there are other indications from Scripture that there will be different resurrections at different times for different people. Um, and so I don't want to be too dogmatic about that, but the second part of that is what really creates the controversy, and that is Jesus says those who have done good things will rise in the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil things will rise in the resurrection of condemnation. So am I saved by grace, or am I saved by works? Well, all you have to do is back up a few verses in John chapter 5 to John 5, 24, where Jesus says, here are the requirements for eternal life. He says, the one who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has everlasting life and will not come into condemnation because they've already passed from death unto life. So what are the qualifications? What are the requirements for eternal life? We hear the gospel message, we hear about the finished work of Christ, and we believe. And when we do, Jesus says, we pass from death, the domain of darkness, the domain, domain of spiritual death, the sphere of Satan, the kingdom of Satan, into the kingdom of light and life. And everlasting life, by its very definition, is something that can't be lost or it's not everlasting. So there, Jesus in John 5, 28 and 29 is not saying we're saved by works, but what I believe he is saying is that believers are going to stand in one judgment, unbelievers are going to stand in another judgment, and the stewardship of our lives will be called into account, not to determine where we spend eternity, because that's determined on this side of the grave with how we answer the question Jesus asked in Matthew 16, who do you say that I am? but rather not where we spend eternity, but how. Paul talks about Christians standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And there at the judgment seat of Christ, our management of all the gifts that God has given us as believers will be called into account and we will receive rewards, eternal rewards for our faithfulness. Or Paul says, and John writes as well, that we might see a loss of reward. In other words, God has laid up rewards for us, but because of unfaithfulness, we may lose those rewards. Yet he says we won't lose our salvation. We'll be saved so as yet by fire. We'll be saved like one escaping a burning building. So it's possible for a Christian 
to stand at the judgment seat of Christ and see that God had great rewards for them that they're not going to receive because they squandered their Christian life. They will not lose their salvation because their salvation is pinned to the life of Christ. But in saving us, God saved us for service. And he equips us with spiritual gifts and talents and time and opportunities. And he expects us as managers of that to be found faithful. For the unbeliever, John describes their resurrection and final judgment in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. He says, they will stand before a great white throne. And there, he says, books are opened. And he doesn't say specifically what those books are, but it has been widely believed throughout the Jewish era and the Christian era that God keeps a record of our lives. Obviously, he does. And so, what did the unbeliever do with the revelation that God gave them? What did they do with the light God shined on them? Why didn't they believe and repent? Why didn't they turn from their sin and turn to Christ? And then even the fact that they didn't, then did they keep other people out of the kingdom of God? Did they keep their husband or their wife? Did they keep their neighbors? Did they keep their family? Did they keep their friends? Did they actively persecute the Christian church? What did they do in working against the kingdom of God? And I believe that will result in degrees of eternal punishment. Just as we will experience rewards, unbelievers will experience varying degrees of punishment. And I think it's interesting, when Jesus confronts the Jewish religious leaders of his day, he tells them, you should have known better. The Messiah is standing right in front of you. The eternal Son of God that Moses and the psalmists and the prophets talked about is here. And you will not acknowledge the Messiah. You will not receive the Messiah. Not only that, you're plotting to kill the Messiah. You don't want in the kingdom of God, and you're preventing other people from entering in. And because of that, Jesus said, you will receive the greater condemnation. Isn't that something? The person who only has creation and conscience as revelation from God, Paul talks about that in Romans 1, is still held accountable for what they do with that revelation of God. But I think the person's going to receive greater condemnation who knows the truth but denies the truth and works actively against the truth. So there is going to be a day of reckoning when we're resurrected and we'll stand either before the judgment seat of Christ as believers or before the great white throne as an unbeliever and our lives will be called into account. And Paul says in Romans 1, the unbelievers will stand before God without excuse, without a defense. They may speak in their own defense, like Jesus says in Matthew 7, but Lord, didn't we preach in your name? In your name, didn't we do a lot of good works? In your name, didn't we even do miraculous things? Jesus never says, no, you didn't do any of that stuff. He says, depart from me, I never knew you. The name of Jesus is powerful, and there are a lot of people who profess the name of Jesus, but they do so for their own personal gain. They want fame, they want power, 
They want money. They proclaim a different Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. And because of that, when they stand before God, that counts for nothing because they've rejected the provision God has given us through his son for forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. All right, number seven, unbelievers will stand before the great white throne, unable to offer any excuse for the rejection of God, who's revealed himself to all people in conscience and in creation. Now, eighth and last, we're going to go back to the verse of Scripture or the passage of Scripture we started with. Jesus said the Holy Spirit convicts the unbelieving world of three truths, sin, righteousness, and judgment. Uh, and he says that, of course, in John chapter 16, starting with verse 7. And so let's look at that just a little bit as we close this session. Jesus says the Holy Spirit not only has a ministry to believers in this age, uh, the, uh, the Holy Spirit regenerates us or makes us spiritually alive. The Holy Spirit indwells us. He lives in the Holy of Holies, uh, in our, the temple of our bodies. He seals us or marks us off as God's own. Uh, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us or sets us apart as God's. The Holy Spirit baptizes us or places us positionally into the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit gives us spiritual gifts. The Holy Spirit helps us understand the word of God. So there's a great ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of believers. But Jesus says the Holy Spirit has a ministry to the unbelieving world as well. He says the Holy Spirit must convict the unbeliever of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He says of sin because they do not believe on me. It is not the sin of murder. It is not the sin of adultery. Uh, it is not the sin of blasphemy that keeps a person out of the kingdom of heaven. What keeps a person out of the kingdom of heaven is their rejection of God's provision for sin the person and work of Christ. So the first thing the Holy Spirit has to do when a person hears the gospel is the Holy Spirit acts on that and says, look, it is your rejection of my son, uh, the Father would say through the Spirit. It is your rejection of the son that keeps you out of the kingdom of heaven. It is the sin of unbelief that keeps you in spiritual darkness. It's the sin of unbelief that keeps you blinded and bound and in captivity to Satan. But then second, the Holy Spirit convicts the unbeliever of righteousness. Um, one of the things that we often encounter when we talk to somebody who's an unbeliever is they will say, well, you know, I'm not the greatest guy or gal in the world, uh, but I do my best. Uh, I believe in God, and I live a pretty good life. On balance, I think I have more good than I have bad, and so one day when I meet the big man upstairs, I think I'm going to be okay. And the Holy Spirit says, no, you're not. You're not okay. Your righteousness, the very best of your righteousness, as Isaiah wrote, is but filthy rags in the sight of God. And I don't want to be too graphic there, but what Isaiah actually is referring to is a menstrual cloth when he says your 
fil your best of works are like filthy rags in the eyes of God. You and I can't be good enough to pay our sin debt. We can't be good enough to earn the favor of God. And so the Holy Spirit has to drive that home truth and say, well, what am I going to do then? Well, then the Spirit points us to the righteousness of Christ. It is his righteousness that's sufficient for salvation. And then third, Jesus says the Holy Spirit convicts the unbeliever of judgment because the prince of this world has been judged. Who's the prince of this world? Satan. Satan has been judged. He's been defeated in the cross of Christ and in the empty tomb, but we know Satan hasn't been sentenced yet. At least his sentence hasn't been carried out. Peter says Satan is like a lion roaming the earth, seeking whom he may devour. And many of Satan's demons are free to roam as well and create an awful lot of mischief in the world. But Jesus said hell or Gehenna or the lake of fire was created for Satan and his demons. So the day is coming when Satan and his demons will be cast into the lake of fire that was created for them. But the Bible also tells us that the person who goes through this life consciously, willfully, repeatedly rejecting the person and work of Christ has chosen to step out into eternity and receive the same eternal punishment that will be given to Satan and his demons. Revelation 20 says at the great white throne, Jesus opens another book, which is the book of life. And he searches in the book of life for that person's name. And there's ample room in that book of life for that person's name. But their name is not found written there because they've rejected the person and work of Christ. And Jesus says everyone whose name is not found written in the book of life is cast into the lake of fire. And that's where unbelievers will spend eternity. So the unbeliever convicts or the Holy Spirit convicts the unbeliever of the sin of unbelief, of the total inability of their righteousness to earn forgiveness of sins and achieve everlasting life, but the righteousness of Christ is sufficient to do so. And then third and last, if you don't receive Christ and become clothed in the righteousness of Christ, you will spend the same eternity that Satan and his demons will spend, and that is in outer darkness in the lake of fire apart from Christ. So when we look at the world today and we see how many belief systems there are and how many counterfeit forms of Christianity are, there are and how many false religions there are, it gives us an idea of the power of Satan to blind, to bind, and to deceive, but it also tells us that God has made provision for every person. He's revealed himself to every person in at least creation and in conscience, but he's further revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ and the canon of scripture. And one day every person will stand before God and give an account for how they responded to the revelation that God has given us. So our purpose is to proclaim the message of Christ the good news that you can't earn it and you don't have to earn it because Christ has already provided it through a sinless life, death, burial, and resurrection. And by the grace of God alone, through faith in Christ alone, 
we can be forgiven of our sins, have our names written in heaven, be brought back into a right relationship with God, our creator, and God, our savior. Well, let me stop here. We've got just a few minutes before our break. I wanted to see if you had any questions or comments uh, about anything we've looked at so far tonight. Yes, sir. Yeah, and, and that's one of the reasons uh, Jesus provides more information about hell than any other source in scripture, and Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven and warned about that and says, you may reject me, but you do so at your eternal peril. Uh, God is light in him. There's no darkness at all. It's hard to imagine God who's sovereign over everything, God who's omnipresent. Everything God created is in his presence. So he say, well, God knows about hell. God sends people there, and, and God is fully aware of that, and yet it's a place of outer darkness, a place where the common grace of God is not available to anyone. It, it's just hard to fathom that uh, for the unbeliever. It's a terrifying place. And it's one of the things that uh, brought me to faith in Christ as an adult. I was 28 years old uh, when I received Christ by faith. And one of the things that brought me to faith in Christ was the realization that if I went to sleep tonight and I died in my sleep, I knew where I was going to spend eternity. And that absolutely terrified me. And the fear of hell is one of the things that brought me uh, to the throne of grace. Somebody else, question or comment? Yeah. Yeah, I, I do think those tools can be helpful. Uh, and I think it's particularly important, uh, like in the conversation you were having with your friend today, is to find out what is the specific area that they're struggling with. For some people, it's, well, I, you know, I, I, lost, I lost my wife. Uh, I lost my husband. I lost my kid. Uh, yeah, he said, you know, if God is good and God is all-powerful, uh, why didn't he do something about that? So I'm not sure I believe in God. So, I mean, if that's the area of struggle for them, then a lot of times there are some very good tools that talk about the sovereignty of God and human suffering and that sort of thing. And those can be helpful and, and comforting. If, if their point of belief is, well, I don't believe the Bible, it's just a bunch of myths and legends, then, um, you know, books or resources that talk about the reliability of Scripture uh, would be good tools to point them toward. Those can all be helpful, but you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, the Word of God itself and the Spirit of God have to act on that human spirit, and then that person needs to respond in belief and repentance. 